Good morning, church. It is great to see you today as we are about to begin a new series called Jericho Walls. Now, if you're familiar with anything in the church world, you know Jericho is kind of a big story in Scripture. It's one of those felt board stories you learned in Sunday school, and it's one of the most miraculous most powerful displays of God's mighty hand. Jericho and its walls were impossible for man to go through. It must have been the hand of God. And you say, well, I'm excited about this, Jericho. What are we going to do? And one of the plans we have is to take the next 10 weeks or so and march our way up to Jericho. We're not going to be going through the entire book of Joshua, but what we are going to do is march to Jericho and see how God did the impossible. And along the way, let's study this guy, Joshua, a courageous leader. One of my heroes in scripture is probably the greatest warrior in scripture. You could maybe compare him to David's exploits, but Joshua was trained by the, you know who his mentor was, right? He was trained by the Moses, right? And and so Moses gave everything to this guy, Joshua. And we're going to learn about his calling, his conquest, and his courage throughout this series. How many of you think you might need some more courage in your life if you're facing some fear or facing some obstacles or facing maybe some walls in your life that seem impossible. You say, how can we make a story like Jericho impact today? I mean, that was the time when Israel was under the law. God had them going on conquest into Canaan to clear out these wicked people. How can um, the New Testament believer gain anything from the book of Joshua today? Is there some congruence that we can pull together? Because we are not called to go on conquest. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Jesus came and appeased the wrath of God and has called us to love him and to love others. And so what would be something that I can do that would be courageous? Well, I think there's times of conflict in scripture that teach us how to handle conflict in our own lives. And would you argue that we are living in a time period where there's a little bit of conflict? And how do we navigate that conflict as believers? Because we've got to be careful. Because the enemy clearly has a narrative he is wishing to build. And that is, the church is not a safe place. The church is a place that is living off archaic truths. The church is preaching offensive things. He is building a narrative that the church is somewhere you don't want to go. And if we're not careful, we'll buy into the narrative and mistake standing up for something for being ones who stand firm in something. And and so God, I believe, has a message for us in the time of conflict, in the time where we might be facing something that's like a Jericho wall. It seems impossible. I'll never get my adult son to talk to me again. I'll never be able to make my neighbor even look at me again. I'll never be able to get that teenager to think that way. I'll never be able to get my mom. I'll never be able to get my grandpa. Do you believe God is still doing the impossible? See, that's a church answer. Yes. But is that how you pray? 
Is that how you walk through life? Or do you give God outs on your prayer life? God, I want to see this awesome thing happen, but I understand if you won't. I think it says a lot, and I think it speaks a lot, when we're faced up against something we believe is kind of impossible about our faith. You know, people who study culture, maybe a lot smarter than me, tell us that we're living in what's being called a culture of contempt, where there's conflict everywhere. We're putting up signs in our yards. We're posting things on websites. And I'm not saying anything those those things is necessarily bad, but we sometimes are buying into the narrative that the people of God are not a loving people. They're actually far from it. But this has been one of our calls, to love God and to love our neighbor. And how difficult is that getting when people are attacking us even for things we believe. How much have just neighborhoods changed in just the past 10, 15 years? I know when I was growing up, I lived in a, in a simple neighborhood here in Percocy. Okay, I lived in row homes. Now, just like picture a neighborhood. Okay, won't you be my neighbor, right? Like, let's, let's picture that for a second. And I remember when people would move in, we'd be like, Oh, possibly a new friend, right? And we go running over some of us and we'd even be like, oh, oh, let's do this. I remember one time helping somebody move into their house. We're like, oh yeah, we got it. We got it. We're dropping their boxes and they love us because we're their new neighbors. Like, okay, you got some more stuff. Okay, okay, you got any, any toys in here that we'll take from you? Um, and, and then we, we, we'd, we would like be looking around like, oh, there's obviously some people our age in here and, and we'd be doing this. Now, if someone moves in, it's this, honey, get over here. <laughs> look at this, look at that, look at that! I knew it. What kind of people do you think they are? I don't know, I'll check out their cars. Oh, yep, yep, clearly a lot of kids. Look at the size of that minivan. Great. Now, now they're, we're going to be up all night. I'm thinking about moving. Why? We haven't even met them yet. I'm thinking about moving. <sighs> when, I'm going out later. They're at their car, okay? They're in their car. Okay, go. I mean, it's totally, I mean, we're almost, and then, and we're buying into it even more where we're starting to even put up walls between us. Oh, I'm not talking about fences. I'm talking about, I'll never talk to them. Do you see what they're like? I heard how they vote. I see what they do. And we build these walls and our neighborhoods. I had somebody recently come up to me. I'm getting a little tired. Like when's the needle going to move? I'm a little tired of everybody hating each other. I don't want to hate my neighbor. I want to love my neighbor. How do I break through this wall? Over the last year and a half, we've become more isolated and more isolated. That's why I say when I was a kid, people were out on their front porches talking. It was like I had 15 parents. We go out in the morning on our bikes. If you're a local, we'd ride to like what's Lesher's, okay? We get some penny candy. We'd be riding our bikes all over town. As I'm coming home, one of the neighbors would yell, Chris, your mom was just out on the porch. She wants you to come home. Okay, thanks. Just riding along our bikes. We come in, have dinner, go back out. The neighborhood was such a wonderful place to be. You know, church, we have a love built inside us in the Holy Spirit where we could be one of the change agents to see that again. <laughs> no, no, Chris, Chris, that's not, you don't know my neighbor. You're right, I don't. 
You don't know my neighbor. I mean, if you understood who I... Wait a minute, wait a minute. I got a question. I got a theological question, Pastor Chris. What's that? Who is my neighbor? Oh. I mean, because I'm good if they're my neighbor, but I'm not good if they're my neighbor. Do we get to define that? You know, we're told in Scripture... It really comes down to two things. Love God and love others, but more specifically, love your neighbor as yourself. When I choose my behavior on social media, on my front yard, in my car, on the way to work, at work, at school, in my dorm room, on the way to class, in my retirement home, at the cafeteria, am I thinking, is my current statements or behavior, are they building walls to protect me or are they breaking through walls? Because it's easy in a time period like this, it's scary out there, build a wall. When only the love of God can break through. Oh, but I'm, I'm all about love, but some of you got some legalism wounds. And you think love is weak. And you've heard things like, well, if we love, then we're going to start compromising, okay? But, but that is not what Jesus called you to do. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that was a very controversial statement in that time period to say, I am the only way. You mean there's a lot, there's a lot of different ways, Jesus. I'm the only way. And I'm going to love you like you've never been loved before. Folks, if you're ever tempted to think loving your neighbor is weakness, you know you're calling Jesus weak, and I promise you, there's nothing weak about him. I want this series to be a time where we challenge ourselves to move the needle a little bit on this narrative that the church is somehow archaic, unloving, rude, and mean. And maybe because of the political and cultural and conflict of our time period, maybe we have been. But what if that were to change? Uh, Chris, I don't know. I look at the future and I look at our current time period. Do you know something? Jesus is said to have all authority. He is sovereign and seated at the right hand of the Father. He knew exactly about this time period. There is no government scandal that he doesn't know about. There is no secret neighborhood plan that he doesn't see. And he's at peace knowing that God is going to work all things out together for the good. Maybe it's time for the church to remember that Jesus isn't stressed out. So why is she? Is it possible that she doesn't believe he can't still knock down impossible walls? I hope you join us on our walk to Jericho because I truly believe God is still in the business of the impossible. And whatever wall you might have in your city, in your town, in your neighborhood, or even in your own house, maybe, just maybe, that's the wall that the love of God wants to knock down. Jericho walls. Let's start today by learning about this Joshua. I pray that it's an awesome series where we build our courage to do the hard right thing, to love those who maybe don't even love us. Heavenly Father, use this series 
to build courage in all of us, to build courage in me, Lord. You know I need it desperately. And Lord, use it to soften people's hearts to what their call is to do. Oh, we're not called to a time of conquest anymore, but we are definitely called to love. For we don't battle flesh and blood. We're called to fight with prayer. We're called to pursue love and to seek and to save the lost through a servant's heart. And Lord, use us to be Jesus, even during this time period. And this we pray, expecting you to knock down walls. Amen. So Joshua is an incredible man of faith. He is an incredible man of courage. But what's encouraging to me is he had to be told to be strong and courageous. The book of Joshua holds one of the most famous verses of all scripture, a verse that people have memorized in their life and taken it as their own. Be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you. The answer to all fear is to remember that the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua lived that life. And we get just a dose of what kind of guy this was going to be. Not in the book of Joshua, which we'll be traveling through, but in the book of Numbers. More specifically, Numbers 13. We get our kind of our first glimpse of the kind of faith that Joshua had. Can I ask you real quick, do you consider yourself to be a courageous person? Isn't that an interesting question? If someone were watching you at work, would they consider you to be a courageous person? If someone were watching you drive, what's the difference between courageous and crazy? I don't know. Maybe we'll get there by the end of the series. Would you consider yourself to be a courageous person or would you kind of lean towards, I'm actually probably not that courageous. Well, I'm courageous in this kind of setting, but in social settings, I'm not so much. I'm courageous in this kind of setting, but like in like dealing with conflict, I, I, I hate, I just don't want to deal with conflict. I wonder what God's calling you to over this series. Joshua was getting called to a mighty calling and he was tested early in life. You know, the story in Numbers 13, I want to point out, is a story of great courage by two men, specifically. Israel is at Kadesh, okay? Y'all got a map in your head? I'll give you one. Don't worry, because I'm a visual learner. And they're at Kadesh, and God has led them out of Egypt. What? Yeah, these slave people, that's what they were. They were bound in slavery for years under there. Now they've been let out. They've seen God do great and mighty things. And they're at the edge of Kadesh, and God had promised them to give them a promised land. It was called Canaan. God said, go up into the land. I'm giving it to you. And they come right up to the edge, and they stop. Could we send a few spies, they say. What for? We want to just kind of get a lay of the land. We kind of want to investigate it a little bit. But God is giving it to them. But we kind of want to check it out, see what kind of people are in there and stuff like that. I mean, hey, that's just wisdom, right? I mean, we would all do that. They've been promised this promised land. They've asked for spies, and the Lord grants it. 
It wasn't rebellion per se, but it wasn't this great confidence that God is going to deliver them through every victory, for they want to see what they're up against. And is it possible they might see things that they're afraid of that could hesitate them from fulfilling what God wants to do in their life? Some of you know the story well. So God approves of this, even the Hebrew writers write as if God is saying, go ahead and do it. And it's chapter 13, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe, how many tribes? Twelve, okay. So from each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone the chief among them. So these are like the tribal princes. And so Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them, men who were heads of the people of Israel. So so they're going to send in spies into the land of Canaan that God already said, I'm going to give to you. And they send 12. And don't think these were like average Joes. These are the elite. These are the prince leaders of the tribes. I mean, these guys are the guys. And you remember their names? You should. No, no, I didn't either. So it's okay. Um, Let me read some of them. Shamua, Shaphat, Caleb, Egal, Hoshea, Paltai, Gadiel, Gadai, Amiel, Sethor, Nabi, Geul. Any names sound familiar? Hmm, I recognize that Caleb one. It's like the only American name in there, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) But there's another one you know. I was looking for Joshua. Wasn't Joshua one of the 12? He is. Can you find his name? See, if you think renaming things is outside the box, throughout scripture, you see God renaming things for new missions and new chapters and new seasons he's calling them to. You remember there was this guy named Simon who turned into somebody named Peter? How about Jacob, Israel? Saul, Paul. Hosea, Joshua. Who did that? Who did that? Moses did it. Moses changed Hosea's name. Scripture says these were the names of the men whom Moses sent out to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. What did Hosea mean? All my, all my scholars are going, oh, simple. It meant he has saved His parents had faith that God would save them, that God would deliver them from slavery. And they named their son Hosea. He has saved, but Moses said, that's not specific enough. I want Yahweh's name in there. And he named him Joshua, which means not he has saved. It means Yahweh has saved. Let it be known that no other God has saved. It is Yahweh. And so Joshua got his name. So Moses sent them in to spy out the land. Let's read a little bit more. He went and sent them into Canaan. He said, go up into the hill country of Negeb and go into the hill country and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell therein are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether it has trees or not. Seems they like trees. What's going on here? Is anybody kind of sitting back going, wait a minute, didn't God just tell you to go do it? Let's check it out first. Hey, hey, we're giving, I'm giving this to you. Thank you, but 
Are the people strong or weak? Which do you think Moses is hoping for? Few or many? Good land or bad land? Camps or strongholds? Are they warriors or are they just kind of like villagers? Are they rich or poor? Are there trees or are there no trees? Go in and spy it out a little bit. Research, measure, evaluate. Have you ever heard the phrase, what you don't know won't hurt you? How much of a lie is that one, huh? Don't go to the bank on that one. There's a lot of things I didn't know about that hurt me deeply, including roller coaster rides, okay? Hey, what you don't know won't hurt you, and then you're passed out halfway through it. Sick the rest of the day. There's a lot of things that you don't know can hurt you, and therefore we should always know what we're getting into. How many of you want to know what you're getting into over the next 10 years? Yeah, uh, actually, no, I don't. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes it is better not to know. And in this circumstance, it's not going to work out better for them to know what they're getting into. God has called them to do something. And they're going to find out it's not necessarily going to be easy. Don't we wish all of the calls that God has called us to in our life were easy? But you ever notice if there's a wall between you and another person, it's not going to be easy for it to come down. And if you're flat honest with yourself, you know only God can take down the wall between you and your wife right now or you and that person right now, or you and that other company right now. Only God could take down that wall. But what if he's calling you to be a Joshua and take the first step? Why did they spy out the land? To see if they can do it. Why did they spy out the land? To see if they can conquer it. Why did they spy out the land? To see if there was anything in there too scary to not do it. And they made the choice to send in the spies. I have heard people say multiple times to me in various situations of life, you know, if I would have known what we were getting into, I would have never done it. It was so hard. So I'm actually glad I didn't know how hard it was. There are parents looking at somebody in their family going, if we wouldn't know, we're not going to go there. That's not, that's not what we're going to do. We're not going to do that. Let's get, pick up the story. Moses says, Go up, be of good courage, and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. I love that. It's almost like Moses is like, hey, make sure you grab some of them grapes we heard about. Canaan's got some grapes, okay? And they want some of them. I mean, make sure you get some of them. But what he's doing here also, he's giving us a little bit of a time period. It seems they had left around March. It's getting towards July. They've been traveling for about four months, and now they're going to send the spies way up into the land. And if I didn't have a map, I would read things like, so they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Lebanon, and I would have been like just reading on. But when I get an image of that in my head, I go, whoa, they traveled? Yeah, they did. They traveled a long time. They traveled down here at Kadesh. Now the green area is all the promised land or the land of Canaan that God was promising them. But they traveled all the way up. They went past, oh my word, they went past Jericho, known for its massive impenetrable walls. They traveled all the way up to Lebomathath and they traveled back down. And they came back from this long journey, this four-month journey. And Numbers tells us what they saw. 
At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation. And they showed them the fruit of the land. Here's the fruit. Ah, oh. And they told him, we came into the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. Let's go. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, flows with milk and honey. This is great. All we've ever had was barely any water. When we were slaves in Egypt, it flows with milk and honey. It was one of those, turn to your neighbor and says, it flows with milk and honey. I mean, think about how happy they are. Oh, yes. And this is its fruit. Oh, show us again. Oh. However, what? However, it's one of the worst howevers in scripture. Look at all this. Look at all this opportunity. However, however what? The people who dwell in the land are strong. Oh. And their cities are fortified. Oh. No. And very large. Oh. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. No, you didn't. Super warriors, those like superhumans, those like freaks. Yes, we saw them there. Oh, could this be any worse? The Amalekites dwell there. No way. The Amalekites, they rip your head off. Yep. The Hittites, oh, not the Hittites. The Jebusites, no more ites. The Amorites, they dwell in the country. Well, at least the Canaanites aren't there. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But there's always that one guy, and that guy's Caleb. And he interrupts and quiets the people and says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. If you're listening on podcasts, I'm pretending to eat a grape. This is why kids' names are Caleb. I say we go. We can't go. Did, did you just not hear us say the people of Anak are there? They're huge. The cities are huge. <laughs> the men argued back with Caleb. We're not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we are. So they brought the people to Israel, bad report of the land, and they spied out and they said, the land through which we have gone to spy out. You know that land that God promised us? Yeah, 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 that land. It devours its inhabitants and all the people that were saw it were their great height. And there that we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, from whom come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers and we seemed like that to them. We can't go. Furthermore, the congregation then raises a loud cry. The people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would what have we died in the land of Egypt? Why don't we just go back to Egypt? Why does God call us this terrible land, this promised land? Or would we not die in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Why would God ask us to do something so hard? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. It's a great excuse to not go. It's always the kids, right? The kids. Can't let that happen to them. 
Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose another leader and go back to Egypt. Man, Moses should get extra rewards in heaven. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy out, it is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. The land flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for their bread to us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord's with us. Don't fear them. Then all the congregation said, yeah. Nope. This is how you know the Bible's true. It does not share its people in positive lights very much. All the congregation said to them, stone those two. I call these moments Kadesh dilemmas. I mean... In hindsight, this is an easy decision, right? They should have gone into the land, right? I mean, come on, you got to go. You got to do what God wants to do. But Moses has got a dilemma on his hands, doesn't he? He's got 10 saying, no way. And he's got two going, let's go. Who's he going to listen to? Let me help you out for a second. You have a leader with a congregation of thousands of people who will turn on you in one second. And you've sent 12 of your best You're a business leader, and you've sent 12 of your best realtors to go check out a new property, and 10 of your best are going, no way are we buying that. No way are we letting you go in there. No way. It is not a good move. It is financial suicide to go in there. And two of your realtors are going, I say we buy it. What do you do? He sent 12 of his best You sent 12 Navy SEALs in, and 10 SEALs are going, this is not our mission. This is not where we want to go. That is not what we want to do. And two are going, (laughs) and you're going, what do I do? Now, now here's something that everybody knows that's in like uh, the business world. Whenever there's like this leader, he's got his people around him, and he listens to them for the most part. But there's always one person's opinion in that group that he trusts more than everybody else's. And so the 10 are going, I say we don't do this, we can't do this. And that guy goes, what do you think? I say we go. We're going, what are we just saying? Because you're constantly evaluating that position as a leader. Am I listening to fear or prudence? I mean, kids could get hurt. This could be tough. This could be very difficult. This might not be something we should do. Or am I listening to faith or folly? Because sometimes faith can be masqueraded by foolhardiness, can it? Ah, let's go. It's no problem. I'll see you later. That's nothing. Am I listening to faith there or foolhardiness? Am I listening to fear or is it actually prudence? And you have to be able to measure those out. And you say, why is it so hard? I mean, God said, I'm giving you the land. Why is this so hard? The 10, the two, the congregation. I got got a, a, a professor. I always just loved his teaching. His last name was Constable. And he said, four reasons he believes 
Israel's call to go in the promised land was hard versus easy. Because God could have made, hey, just go on in, have fun, set up some amusement parks. But in that process, he offers four reasons God made it hard. One, to kind of teach them to accept his path as best. Why so hard? Maybe to prepare them for the hardship they would face in the land. Why so hard? Maybe to develop them in a deeper character and faith. Why so hard? Maybe to train them to depend wholly on him. Who does he go with? What do they do? Do you know the story? They don't go. They don't go into the land. They decide we're not going. And there's those in the room who go, that's wisdom. And there's those in the room who go, oh my word. God told them to go into the land. You know, I, I, I've, I've heard this quote. I, I like this quote. It says this, opportunities are usually disguised as hard work. So most people don't recognize them. Young people, I'll teach you a lesson really early in life and your parents can listen in. Most of the greatest opportunities you have in your life, you will have to work the hardest you've ever worked before. In fact, scripture will even tell you, money that comes easy is lost easy in Proverbs. The things you have to work the hardest for, heads up, that's probably the best thing in your life. Because it's easy to do the easy path. The hard path will demand faith. It'll demand it. And God is in the business of growing his kids' faith. Do you have a wall that you've already thought of already in this sermon series? That's not gonna come down. That might just be the wall God is calling you to. And so what I did in these moments, I need always more juice for these moments where I've got 12 people around me. I fully trust, I fully trust. And I got this many saying no and this many saying yes. How do I put this through? And so I put down some characteristics of things I heard coming out of the 10 and characteristics of things I heard coming out of the two. And I noticed I heard fear coming out of one and I heard faith coming out of the other. Watch this, watch this. The 10. Fear sees the difficulty. Have you ever noticed it? Looks hard, looks tough, looks tough. Faith sees the opportunity. I say we go. Fear speaks loudly. They're yelling, they're yelling. And, and, and Caleb quiets the crowd because faith doesn't have to speak loudly. I would encourage you. It's very hard to trust voices that are screaming the loudest. And have you not noticed our culture is currently listening to only those voices? Faith doesn't have to scream. Faith speaks boldly. Now, now fear offers excuses. I got a lot of good excuses why we shouldn't do it. I'm not feeling that well right now. It's a big challenge. I mean, look at the problems of our family. We got this. But faith offers reasons. I got some reasons we should do this. Whenever I'm listing reasons, I'm operating in faith. When I'm not listing excuses, I know I'm operating in fear because that's how I work. And so I'm seeing this in the 10 and the two. Fear brings hesitation. Have you ever noticed that? I was thinking about, we're thinking about, but I don't know. And then we're gonna do this and then this. When I know I'm operating in fear, I'm hesitant. And the reason is 
a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Faith, it brings motivation. I say we go, come on, let's go, let's charge it. Whoa, that hurt, but let's keep going. That's what faith does. It brings motivation. Fear brings, well, I'm done. I knew it, I knew it, I knew we shouldn't. Fear divides people. Have you ever noticed that? The more fear that has been poured into our society, the more unity have you found? No. Fear divides people. Faith unites people. Fear always leads to conflict. Faith leads to peace. Fear leads to saying, what if? Faith resolves even if. Have you ever heard the phrase, fortune favors the brave? Is it possible that those who operate in faith are the ones who see the victories? Are there consequences to hesitating in fear? Let me read four verses in the book of Numbers. Here's one. Numbers 14.30. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. What? Yeah, yeah. How about the spies? Numbers 14.38. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. How about numbers, numbers, go ahead one more. Numbers 26, 65. For the Lord has said to them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb and Joshua. Numbers also tells me this in Numbers 32, 11. Surely none of the men who came up out of the land of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give them to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob because they have not, there it is wholly followed me. There was part of them that doubted me. There are part of them that saw the land and said, we can't do it. God won't be with us. We'll go into there and God won't come with us. And he will. Their hearts aren't holy. And he tested them and they're failing. And not one of them will go in except for, look at the next verse, Caleb and Joshua. We built this into a theme for our church called Like the Two. And we encouraged our church to be a church that thinks like the two. When did we introduce this? About a year and a half ago, we were in a tent in August going into September. It was getting a little bit colder out. And we said, we're going to go inside. And we knew there were people who would shame us for going in. And we also knew there were people who were going to shame us for having not already go in. We knew there were people who would shame us for how we were going to go in. And we knew there were people who would shame us for how we were going in. And so you're making a decision knowing it is not going to be possible to not be the dinner conversation in the homes across your church. But we have to move. We can't stay still. And we'll go like this. And although we might think it's uncertain, it might be dangerous to some, some might think there's no problem, go for it. 
but we're going to think like the two, not like the 10, that if we go and we place it in prayer, that God will honor us. And whatever you're facing in your life where you're saying it's too strong, it's too big, it's too frightening, the answer to that, the spies tell me, is go, God's with you. Just make sure he's with you. Make sure what you're doing is not building up a wall, but knocking it down. You say, but Chris, how does this apply to today? I mean, that's the conquest of Joshua. That's Israelite living under the law. How can I apply like the two thinking today? Well, let's start in your neighborhood. You say, these two guys aren't walking down the street. No, they're not. If they were, maybe buy some of their grapes. But you might have some situations right in your area, right with your neighborhood, that you might be being called to knock a wall down that's been built up. Maybe it's not a wall you built up. Maybe somebody built up a wall against you. And you've been living in the fine if that's the way you're going to be. Look, I couldn't please that guy if I tried to. Hey, I don't even like that guy. Do you see the sign in there? I would never talk to that guy. And whatever that wall might be. Is it possible that God's going... I want to use you. I'll tear the wall down. The battle belongs to me. Do you want me to fight? No, I want to stay angry. Do you want me to fight? Yeah, kind of. Can I ask you a question though, Jesus? What's that? Who's my neighbor? Like the guy right next to me or like the guy over there? Like the guy with the pool? Because we like that guy. Is it possibly it's not your neighborhood, but it's somebody right here in this church? Who's my neighbor? Is it possible you haven't met your neighbor yet? Who's my neighbor? And a lawyer of all people walked up to Jesus and said, I know the law and I know what we teach is who our neighbor is. Jesus, who do you say our neighbor is? What? Oh yeah, there's this little account in scripture that says a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test saying teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life and he said to him well what's written in the law Jesus says how do you read it and he answered you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself he read to him what was called at that time the Shema the law says, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. There's only one problem. Nobody can fulfill the law. And Jesus knows that. And he, the lawyer, trying to justify himself, which is an interesting phrase. Justify what? Justify one of his positions said, and who is my neighbor? Now, the Pharisees would have leaned in. Good, Jesus. Who's our neighbor? Because the rabbis taught, and rabbinic tradition was, that the law put the Jewish people together, and only their neighbor was Jews, not Samaritans. Not those people over there, not them Gentiles. Our neighbor is only the Jews. They had this mindset. They had this teaching. And Jesus, you think Jesus didn't know that? And so Jesus, instead of answering him, goes, I'm going to tell you a story. And what does Jesus do? I don't know if you've ever seen this in scripture or ever noted this. You're going, how do we go from Jericho to Jesus? Watch this. 
Jesus goes, I want to tell you a story that occurred on the road to Jericho. It goes like this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a 3,000-foot descent called the Way of the Blood. Robbers would kill people on this all the time. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. I'm sure those Pharisees were leaning in. Where's he going with this story? Jesus continues. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. What are the Sadducees thinking? Rightfully so. That guy could be dead. We cannot be spiritually unclean. Pass on the other side. Jesus continues. Then there was this Levite. When he came to the place, have you ever noticed that? He didn't just pass by. He came to the place and stopped. He investigated the situation and then passed by. Now, now, now the Pharisees might be thinking, well, that Levite is a priest set apart. He was probably fulfilling his priestly duty. But did you note that Jesus only told you that there was one Levite passing and Levites would carry in groups when they were fulfilling their priestly duty. Jesus is up to something here. And he drops the bomb. I want you to understand something. Pharisees and Sadducees were disgusted by Samaritans. And Jesus goes, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to the place where he was, and he saw compassion on him. You know, compassion has a twofold meaning. Compassion does not mean, oh, I feel so bad. Compassion means I want to have empathy, but compassion has a second, and I'm going to do something about it. And look what he does. He goes to the man and he goes to him and he binds up his wounds, pours oil and wine on him. He uses his own oil and wine. He's bounding up his wounds. Then he set him on his own animal, boom, and brought him into the inn and took care of him. And then, look what he said, Jesus goes, and then the Samaritan, the next day he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. And then Jesus turns to these guys who are trying to question him. And I got a heads up for you. Don't try to question Jesus. He turns to them and he says, which one do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. You want me to go and be like the very person I hate? Yeah, because I know you hate them. And I know you worship me outwardly, but your heart is not holy towards me. And isn't it amazing how Jesus is so willing to do open heart surgery on us? I know the lip service, but I really want to know what you truly think about your neighbor. And Mark, he records a moment where someone came up to Jesus and said, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor then if I'm reading this story of the Samaritan? 
I'm going to argue my neighbor is the one whom God has placed in your path. Oh, don't just think of Philadelphia, Perkesy, Souderton, the one whom God's placed in your path. This week, as you're going through your week, God might place somebody in your path you wouldn't typically be a good neighbor to. And maybe this series will go, I know college season's over, but I would tell you, what about your roommate? I, I, I know school is about to end, praise God, kids, right? But what about your classmate? What about your neighborhood? When people think of you, do they think there's something different about that person? There's something different about that family? Or are we building walls that the love of gospel needs to break through? Well, how could I do this? I need specifics before I leave, Chris. Well, I got a few minutes to share these things. I noted in the Samaritan story that this is what a good neighbor does. They look at their neighbors with eyes of compassion, not judgmentalism. Good neighbors come to the rescue when someone's in need. Good neighbors harbor no prejudice. Good neighbors help mend wounds. I'm not saying your neighbor's necessarily bleeding, but you know if there's a wall build up, a good neighbor will try to mend it. And it's not always going to be pretty. I heard an illustration of somebody, their neighbor was in the hospital, so they went and mowed their yard for him. How cool is that? The neighbor came home and was angry. They didn't mow the correct lines. You're sometimes going to get beat up. It doesn't always go that smooth. But that kind of servant love is sometimes what we're called to. A good neighbor lends of their possessions. It was the middle of the Eagles Super Bowl, right before the amazing play in the end zone. My power went out in my first year home. My neighbors brought a generator so I could watch the end of the game. You got to understand, in my neighborhood, I'm the neighbor that always needs help because I really don't have much to offer anybody. So a couple of people in the church are my neighbors, and they're like, oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. A good neighbor goes the extra mile. They don't go just a little bit. They go the extra mile. And a good neighbor offers future assistance. I remember one time shoveling my driveway the first year I was in our house going, why on earth am I shoveling this massive driveway? And why am I allowing my sons to sleep in right now? And my neighbor came around the corner with a Jeep with a plow on it. And he said, Chris, let me plow the driveway out. And I did the obligatory, oh, don't, don't. No, don't, that's... There is nothing that can break down a wall like servant love. Oh, maybe you don't necessarily are the two. But what if God is calling you in your neighborhood to be the one? Be the one that goes, I don't want to do things that build walls up. I might not be able to help it. I might just be unlike for no reason, but be the one. I heard an illustration of a couple they had just moved into their house. And they told their teens, hey, 
mom and I got to run out for a few things. You guys, just make sure you got your bedrooms cleaned up, okay? And don't let mom come back to a dirty kitchen. Just please, for dad, don't let mom come back. Okay, whatever you do, guys, whatever you do, I need you to take out these two boxes, okay? All right, whatever you do, get that done. But please, if you could, kitchen, your bedrooms, all right? Okay, dad, okay, hey, guys, guys, whatever you do, okay? Yes, yes, all right. Yes, yes, okay. They leave, mom and dad come back. Oh, look at the kitchen. I know, they're great kids, can you believe them? Oh, mom, we cleaned up our rooms. Hey, thanks, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What? Guy, hey, what? Guys, come down here. What? What? Hello? Yeah, but dad, you saw our rooms, right? Eh, yeah, th yes, they're great. Dad, you saw the kitchen, right? We got a lot of stuff done. Guys, I said whatever you do, clear these two out. I'm sorry. Church, two things. The whole law is summarized. Love the Lord with all your heart. Oh, God, we're doing that. We're, you see our worship songs? Yeah. You see our discipleship ministries? Discipleship ministries are great, guys. I love it. You see our new Bible studies we're starting up? Yeah, they're awesome. You see our camp? You see our camp? You see the kids? Ah, yeah. Your camps, I love them. What? Huh? Love your neighbor as yourself. In a time period where churches across America are tempted to build 20-foot walls around all their properties, is it possible that God wants the love of his goodness to break the narrative? And in order to do that, it's going to take us carrying some junk out, isn't it? And dealing with it so that the love of God can shine through us. Who's your neighbor? Somebody told me he's a little newer to the church. I know how to meet people in this church. How? Sit in a different spot. We're all tempted to sit in the same spot. So I sit in a different spot in the auditorium and I meet new people. What if you took a challenge? Our deacons are taking a challenge. We always invite the same people over. Have you noticed that? You probably got, you look back in the last three years, you invite the same people. What if you invited somebody you typically don't invite? Maybe you don't want to start with a neighbor over there. Oh! so scary. But maybe you start right here in the church. Maybe you start with somebody in your small group. Maybe you start by going, we want to be the ones that shine the love of Jesus Christ and break this narrative the devil is trying to build, that the church is the place you want to avoid. And instead, let the church go out and show this world who Jesus truly is. Amen? Heavenly Father, use this series to help us break down walls. In a room this size, there's walls of resentment. There's walls of bitterness. There's walls of anger. There's walls of frustration. With our views on things, with where we would like our country to be, with what's going on in our towns, our schools, our area, and opinions abound. May we ask ourselves in what I'm saying, in what I'm doing, and the way I'm acting, am I building up walls or am I allowing them to fall through? And for all of us, who are tempted to listen to the lawyer or legalist in ourselves that says, if I love, I want to define who I love. And listen to you, Jesus, say, who proved to be the neighbor? Uh, the one who showed the most mercy. Go and do likewise. God, give us the courage to do that 
because that means we're probably gonna get rejected a bunch too. And it's gonna hurt and sting a little bit. Would you give us the courage to tear down walls that only you can tear down? It's your battle, God. You have not called us to conquest against people, but you have called us to love you and love our neighbor. Whatever we do, may we make sure we're doing that. Amen.